0: Scripture reading is from Isaiah Chapter forty, verses twelve to twenty six. Isaiah forty, Isaiah forty from verse twelve. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering Selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Lord, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Would you also turn then please to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 verses 33 to 36. It's the uh, text for the sermon, and then we'll read from the Westminster Confession, Chapter 2, Article 2. In the uh, previous section, the Apostle was uh, talking about the way that God had dealt with the Jews and the uh, Gentiles and After speaking about God's mercy to the Gentiles, also his uh, long-suffering with the Jewish people who had turned against him, he then exclaims in verse 33, O the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counsellor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then uh, if you look in the bulletin, you'll find uh, a copy of this particular article from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, article 2. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent, or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men, and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, will you help us to see from your word how wonderful you are, full of wonder and wonders, in all of your infinite attributes, and how wonderful are your works, works of creation and providence and salvation. And Father, as we see this, will you enable us to see all the more reason to give you praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, I'm uh, aware of different views on the subject of application, in uh, gaining application from a text of the scripture, and also from sermons about those passages. I know that there are different views on that, especially when we come to the matter of doctrine. Uh, Some perhaps think that when we're dealing with doctrine, we're not dealing with anything practical. Practice application is a different matter than doctrine. And so many feel that they haven't received any application if, uh, when they hear a sermon, for example, if they're not told uh, specifically what to do or not to do regarding their behaviour. Well, I would certainly agree that every text in the Bible has application. However, I would argue that it is not always so obviously about our behaviour. Sometimes the application is about how we think of God, which then comes into every aspect of our behaviour rather than a particular command or prohibition that has to do with one aspect or other of our behaviour as such. Well, here we are in a very doctrinal section of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, that's uh, something that we ought not to shy away from and ought not to be ashamed of studying doctrine. We we are, in fact, in a section that deals with the doctrine of God. And we've seen already that uh, some of these doctrines in this second chapter, such as the immutability of God, the fact that He is completely unchangeable and unchanging or the impassibility of God, meaning that he has no passions, that he doesn't change emotionally like humans. These teachings to do with the doctrine of God come into everything that God is and everything that God does. And the same is true with the matter that is really the focus of the second article in this chapter. And uh, to pick an easier word to describe it, It is about the independence of God. A fancy word that's sometimes used is the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God. Uh, A word that has to do with the fact that God is uh, complete as he is in himself. And uh, some people have tried to give a sort of a cute uh, explanation of that word, aseity, by saying Aseity is referring to how to God as he is. Aseity, as he is. But um, it is a little bit more than that. At any rate, if you want one example of how such doctrines can lead to uh, very practical application as we think about those things, uh, consider our singing, for example. Just to take one example. Even the singing of children. I've heard the children of this congregation sing the song, My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Well, each of these aspects of the doctrine of God that we have been looking at already and that we will look at again this afternoon, have, uh, they very much reinforce that truth. They teach us and remind us of the, the greatness and the mightiness of our God, which we can then bring into all of our life in everything we do, including our worship. Three points then, that we look at how this text teaches us about God's independence. First of all, the infinite depths of God. Secondly, the dependence of creation upon him. And thirdly, his independence from creation. So his infinite depths, the dependency of creation on him, but his independence from creation. In the first place then we're dealing once again with the a very uh, basic and underlying truth in this whole section or truths that God is infinite and he is eternal. And that, well, those truths apply to everything that God is, they apply to all of his attributes, he's infinite and eternal in all of his attributes. And that in turn implies that God is unchangeable or immutable. Uh, He's uh, infinite. You can't change that which is infinite and make the infinite less infinite or more infinite. Uh, It implies also that he is without passions. Uh, You cannot, if God is infinite, you can't uh, by emotional variation make him less this or more that. He's infinite in all his attributes. And it also means, another point that comes out particularly in our passage here, is that God's knowledge and wisdom are also infinite, infinitely far above us. It is not just that God knows more than us, that's certainly true, but that his knowledge is of a wholly other kind. His knowledge is not a human type of knowledge, it is a divine type. And uh, this lies behind... Another, here's another theological term, the incomprehensibility of God, which means that as the tiny little creatures we are, we cannot possibly wrap our minds around who God is. No surprise then that his judgments are unsearchable and his ways unfathomable, as verse 33 says. His judgments, which can include his, his uh, plans, predestined from eternity, His commandments, His punishments, and all His ways, all the ways of His providence, these things cannot be searched and traced out by man, Uh, certainly not unaided. The only things we can know about God's plans and His works his commandments, his punishments, his providence, his character. The only way we can know about these these things is if he tells us. And even then, we only know a very small amount that is especially fitted for our limited human consumption. That's also what leads the apostle to quote, and and this is now where we get into this uh, point that we'll come back uh, to do with God's independence, but uh, this is where this is why the apostle quotes Isaiah forty and especially verses thirteen and fourteen, as we read quoted here in verse thirty-four. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become His counsellor? The point is this: that how can a sinful and a finite man ever think that he would be in a position to give God advice? or to somehow help God think of something that he hadn't already thought of, or to tell him something that he didn't know, to give him a new idea, or to correct him of some misunderstanding that allegedly exists on his part. Not when we are so unable to plumb the infinite depths of God's unique knowledge, or search out and trace his plans and his ways and his judgment, it is absolutely impossible for us to be his counsellors. And uh, this, I would suggest, is something that we easily forget in, in a number of ways. There is a constant temptation for man, and that includes God's people as well, a temptation for us to keep trying to pull God down to our level, as if that were possible. For example, there are some who don't like any doctrine that they can't fully understand. And so they try to reduce those doctrines to something simpler and more palatable. For example, the doctrine of predestination, far too complex, far too difficult, so many try to pull that down to God simply looking into the future and reading the future and acting accordingly as if he was some kind of cosmic fortune teller. Or the doctrine of the Trinity. And history again, and the history of the church is littered with examples of this. People try and, they don't understand it, it's a mystery, it's too big for them, so they've got to pull it down in size, pull that doctrine down and reduce it to either God being one or God being three in some way instead of confessing with the scripture without being able to wrap our minds around it, but confessing with the scripture that there is one God in three persons and three persons in one God. Or, at other times, we speculate about things that are not revealed. I think of a subject like the end of the world. How much speculation is there on that? But other issues as well. Or, when we pray, here's another area in which uh, we seem uh, to forget at times that God already knows and has planned all things... Yet often when we pray, we sound, at least sound as if we're actually filling God in on the details. Or we feel, another example of how we fail to accept these truths uh, fully, we feel that providence is unfair when we can't see the reasons. If we can see the reasons, no problem. But if we can't see them, then there must be something wrong with the universe, it must be unfair, because I'm entitled to know the reason why God does what he does. But there ought to be no surprise that we have these experiences, because God's wisdom is unsearchable, and his ways are unfathomable, and therefore we ought to expect that there will be many situations where we don't know God's reasons. Instead of doing any of that, the apostle simply breaks into praise. He had been considering God's mercy to the Jews and the Gentiles, which drew him to say that God's plans and his ways are incomprehensible. And then instead of starting to speculate about that, or instead of starting to alter the truths to make it simpler and easier, instead of that, he simply breaks out into praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Verse 33, that's praise. To him be the glory forever. Verse 36, that's praise. Praise at the start, praise at the end of the text, indicating that everything in between is involved or part of the praise of God as well. A little bit like the song, praise, a little bit like that song, my God is so great. That's what the apostle's saying in, in his own words. Corresponding to the praise of the infinite and incomprehensible God is the humble acknowledgement that we, like all creatures, are totally dependent upon him. Our second point, the dependency of creatures upon him. And this also is true of all these different aspects of the doctrine of God. His immutability, his impassibility, his satiety or independence, On the one hand, these truths lead us to praise God all the more, but on the other hand, they lead us to humble ourselves before God if we take them in the right way. For every single one of these truths emphasizes again to us the the distinction between the creator and the creature and how big that difference is. It teaches us, in other words, that our God is so great, but it also teaches us that we are so small. In what ways then are we so small? In what ways are we so dependent upon God? Well, we've already seen that we are dependent on the Lord for revelation. Otherwise, all we would have is this unsearchable and unfathomable God, this incomprehensible God. But he is pleased to reveal himself to us. And so we know some things, the things he wants us to know. We know those things as far as it goes, even though we know so little and in a creaturely way. But we are also dependent upon him for salvation. We are dependent upon him having chosen us for salvation. We are dependent upon him having chosen to send his son to die for us for our salvation. We are dependent upon him having sent his word to us so that we heard the gospel and sending his spirit to work in us so that we were able to accept that gospel, to have a a new nature placed within us so that we could begin to serve God. Given the gift of faith, given the, the understanding of scripture, we are dependent upon God to preserve us each day. We are dependent upon God to provide for us each day. That utter dependency is summed up in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the source of all good things. He is also the agent through whom all these good things come to us, the ultimate agent. And not only to us, but to all creatures, to all of creation. And he is the one who is therefore owed All praise and all thanks and all service, whether by men or by angels or for that matter, even creation itself, which in its own way, even those creatures that are not intelligent or even uh, living, all creatures in their own way uh, give him glory. Because again, all the glory is his. To him be the glory forever. And none of that glory is to us. same can be said of the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus is God. In fact, it is said of him, uh, for example, in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, all things have been created. Here's the same language again that's said of God uh, in our passage and now said of the Lord Jesus also in uh, Colossians. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together uh, think about that what does that leave us to contribute to god if he is the source of all these things all things all good things then what is it that we could possibly ever contribute to god that he does not already have there's nothing at all And even the worship that we give him and the glory that we give him, that's not something where we're giving him something that he lacks, as if he needs our worship to be completely happy or as if he needs us to give him glory because he doesn't quite have enough glory in himself and somehow we're going to be able to top that up. He doesn't need those things from us, but it is nevertheless right and good and appropriate that he puts that duty upon us because he deserves all glory. He deserves all praise. So we, uh, our task is simply to express the fact that God has all glory in himself, uh, not to give him anything that he doesn't already have. And yet despite all of that, despite all that teaching about the dependency of man and all creatures upon God, despite that, Man, the sinner, loves to think of himself as independent. He loves to see himself as autonomous, meaning self-governing or self-ruling. Self-ruling, self-sufficient, independent of his creator and his ruler and his redeemer. And therefore the sinner constantly looks to himself to provide for himself. And we as his people are tempted to do that too sometimes. To, look, uh, to provide for ourselves and forget that everything we have by way of provision comes from him. We are tempted to, like as unbelievers certainly operate this way, but even as Christians, we are tempted to uh, look at ourselves, look to ourselves to get ourselves out of the difficulties that we have created for ourselves. We look to ourselves in order to save ourselves too sometimes. Perhaps we don't do that very overtly, very openly, but uh, whenever we start to think of ourselves as being uh, pretty decent people who make a real contribution to the kingdom of God and the church of God, and isn't that uh, pretty good of us to do so, surely God must be pleased with us because of what we do. The minute we start to bring in that idea of merit, or we look to ourselves to reveal the truth to ourselves, We open up God's word and we read it and we forget to ask him to show us and give us that understanding and we think we maybe can figure it out ourselves. We are by nature, by our sinful nature, would be, or as they might say today, want to be independence. But the scripture has busted that particular myth, the myth of man's independence and autonomy. That is why we need to be reminded of these truths and of the truth of God's independence or aseity, his self-sufficiency, our third and final point, his independence from creation. If the text reminds us of our dependency on the Lord, it also teaches us about his independence from his creation. And it does that by reminding us that no one can counsel God because He knows everything already. He doesn't need us. It does that by reminding us that we can't add any glory to God. All glory is already His. It does that by reminding us also in verse 35 that God has no needs that we can fill by our gifts to Him. He has no need of any advice He has no need of any added glory. He has no need of any sort that we can possibly fill because he is completely independent. And this article in the Westminster sums that up. It sums it up in various ways by saying that God has all glory, all goodness, all blessedness in and of himself. So you can't add any more of those things. It does that by uh, telling us that he is all-sufficient in himself, and therefore he doesn't need anybody else's help. It does that by telling us that he is the fountain and the source of all being or existence, and therefore he doesn't need someone else to be a fountain to pour out something to him. It does that by reminding us that God is sovereign over all. There's no one and nothing else that is sovereign over him. It does that by reminding us that God, is, he knows all things infinitely and infallibly and therefore he cannot be told anything he doesn't know. He cannot be corrected and uh, in any way uh, uh, told something or surprised by anything that he didn't already know. There is nothing uncertain to him. And because of all that, God, there is no way that anybody can control God or manipulate him or thwart his plans. And as I said, even though we worship him, he is not dependent on that either. These are implications that come out of our text as well as being summarized in uh, the Westminster Confession. However, I, I hasten to add to this that none of this means that the Lord is uninvolved with his creatures. He is fully involved, yet he is involved in a way in which he does not become dependent on us. So that we have no demands that we can make upon him. We've got no hold. So we can't make any demands upon him. There are no obligations that we can impose upon him. And if he has any obligations, they are only self-imposed ones. Uh, For example, his obligation to keep the covenant because he chose freely, not because anybody forced him to do so or manipulated him to do so, he swore that covenant and because of his own nature, he will keep those covenant promises. That is his own self-imposed obligation, if you want to put it that way. And in that same freedom, he also chose and promised to give us help. And in fact, the point about all of this is that it is precisely because God is independent, because he is free from manipulation, free from being thwarted, free from being controlled or pressured, it is precisely because of that that we know that he can keep all of those promises and give us all that help without ever being thwarted. The independence of god also means that he can display pure grace to us without being bought he shows us that grace in the lord jesus christ and he gives us that grace out of his own good pleasure otherwise it wouldn't be grace if we had if we could put an obligation on himself for example by doing lots of good deeds and thinking we have all this merit and then say to God, well, God, you owe me. I've done good things for you. Now, I've scratched your back. Now, you scratch mine. Then there would be no such thing as grace. But because God is independent and free from all of those things, acting only out of his own good pleasure, because of that, there can be such a thing as free grace. No merit on our part, no way that we out of ourselves can obligate him because he needs nothing from us, and we can give and add nothing to him, yet because he chooses to, he showers that grace upon us, through the Lord Jesus above all. And because he then deserves it, it is good and right for us that we respond to that with his help and render worship to him and uh, offer our service to him, which he enables us to do as well, and uh, to uh, then recognise as well that he has promised to graciously reward us for doing those very things that come from him. Of course, as with the other attributes of God, we keep in mind that the Lord Jesus is both God and man. Absolutely independent as God, but agreeing to take on a dependent human nature for our sakes so that as a baby and as a child the lord jesus depended on his parents he depended on god's provision each day he depended on his father's will he depended on the holy spirit equipping him as a man and you see this is a demonstration of how much he loved us that the independent one would add a nature that it would experience such dependency And such weakness and even helplessness, particularly on the cross. You have a um, a strong man in the prime of his life. And suddenly he's struck by a crippling illness. And if he's been very strong, not only physically but also strong of mind, that can be very hard for a man to experience that, to go from that strength, that degree of independence, suddenly to find himself so dependent on medical staff, on family members and so on. But here we have something that's on a a degree so far above that we can hardly even imagine. The one who was infinitely strong and almighty, the eternal second person of the Trinity, agreeing to take on an even greater degree of dependency and weakness and suffering, and to do that for us. And again, I want to stress that all of this reinforces that creator-creature distinction. The greatness of God over against the finiteness of the creature. Divine independency, but without aloofness, over against the dependency of the creature. This being emphasized so that whenever we hear the children sing, My God is so great or when we sing similar songs ourselves in our worship services, as we'll do in a moment, and likewise when we pray, and when we confess our faith to God the Father Almighty, and when we give our offerings to Him, and when we seek to obey His Word and render service to Him, we will be less inclined to think of ourselves as those who are somehow doing a favour for God but rather have a fuller idea of just how great he is and just how little we can give, which is to say we can give nothing that he doesn't already have. How great then is his grace to accept our worship and our service and even for Christ's sake to reward it. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you keep us from uh, thinking that we could ever give you anything you do not already have, whether that should be by way of advice or glory or gifts or service. Father, will you cause this to govern our prayers, our tithing, our view of serving you in worship, whether worship services or uh, during the week, and uh, striving to do good deeds. Father, will you fill us with a confidence and trust in you that uh, you are the God who cannot be manipulated or controlled or compromised or bought. We thank you and praise you that we can have this confidence. We thank you and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is uh, so mighty that he doesn't need uh, offerings, Uh, he doesn't uh, have any needs, as we've said, but he does desire us to demonstrate thankfulness and to seek his help, which he freely gives to us. Psalter Hymnal 92, stanzas 1, 2 and 4 to 6. We'll stand to sing, would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 92, stanzas 1, 2 and 4 to 6. After the blessing as our doxology, we sing number 60, stanza 8. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.